Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. Live from the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for January 23rd, 2023. Here's today's rundown. The OIG, Office of Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, reports that nearly 25% of Medicare beneficiaries experienced adverse events during their hospital stay in October 2018. Although the OIG issued their report in May of last year, the fallout continues, as you'll hear today from Monitor Monday's own physician and attorney, Dr. John K. Hall. We'll also hear reports from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Dr. John Zellum, and former CMS official Matthew Albright, who has our legislative update. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Fox. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have much news to report, and so we begin, as we usually do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. He's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Let's start today with a silly denial. Now, unfortunately, I don't remember the insurer, so I can't publicly shame them. But here's the story. A physician obtained prior authorization for an outpatient laparoscopic hysterectomy. The surgery proceeded uneventfully, and the patient was discharged. When the hospital submitted the claim, it was rejected. The coding was done correctly. The indication for surgery was appropriate. So what was wrong? Well, the uterus, once removed, weighed more than expected, so the CPT code for the surgery changed and the claim denied not matching the authorized CPT. Now, why does a hysterectomy um, for a uterus that weighs over or under 250 grams have different codes? I have no idea, but it does. Now, I'm sure the hospital will get paid eventually, but the time and effort to get that payment just multiplied exponentially. Moving on, last week, Choosing Wisely and the Society of General Internal Medicine released five updated recommendations. You may know these from professional societies uh, about what is commonly called things we do for no reason. This time, the lists include five things. Asymptomatic healthy adults do not need a yearly physical exam or labs. Routine pre-op labs before low-risk surgeries are not necessary. We should not perform cancer screening for patients with a life expectancy of under 10 years. And PICC lines should not be used for patient or physician convenience. Finally, type 2 diabetics not on insulin do not need to perform daily home blood glucose monitoring. Now, why do I talk about these to this audience? Well, we all have a role in ensuring the medical care we provide is appropriate. Millions of dollars are spent on these low-value and potentially harmful interventions, money that can be better spent on improving health equity, reducing food insecurity, and so much more. And a little anecdote about the diabetes recommendation. I stopped recommending my patients with type 2 diabetes check their glucose every day about 10 or 15 years ago when the studies appeared that showed it was not beneficial. I did send all my patients to a diabetic educator to learn about diet and so on. One of those patients came back to me and said, the educator taught me to check my finger stick glucose and told me to check it daily. She said you were old-fashioned and that up-to-date doctors recommend daily checks. I explained the evidence to the patient, and the patient was happy not to have to buy the testing supplies and stick their finger every day for no good reason. 
Finally, I'm sure all of you have read my Rack Monitor article from last week and submitted a comment to CMS on the proposed rule. If you haven't, do it. There's a link in the article to a letter template provided by the American College of Physician Advisors to help you guide your thoughts. Tell them your Medicare Advantage horror stories and how they put up roadblocks to necessary care and adversely affect patients. But of course, don't include any PHI. And as I described, think about using the two midnight rule for all your Medicare Advantage patients start now. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel, and good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday, 2023, a new year. So I was asked recently, what's the difference between a rack and a MAC? And I have to tell you a lot. The regulations are completely different. MACs have regulations for themselves and racks have regulations for themselves. A Medicare administrative contractor, which is a MAC, is a private healthcare insurer hired by CMS to handle and process Medicare Part A and Part B claims or durable medical equipment, DME claims for Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries. MACs also help with audits of claims from home health hospice providers. MAC audits are powerful and intrusive procedures that have the potential to lead to serious federal charges for healthcare entities. The limits for looking back is a lot longer than the RACs. MACs can go back four, five, even six years, depending on whether fraud is alleged. The limits can be extended if fraud is alleged. Now going to the RACs, those limits are a lot more uh, limited. They are limited to three years. A recovery audit contractor or a RAC reviews claims and identifies overpayments from Medicare so that CMS and other auditors are able to prevent improper payments in the future. RACs work to uncover instances of fraud within healthcare providers' billing practices and pursue recoups if needed or alleged recoups. If evidence of fraud or other misconduct is uncovered during a RAC audit, the RAC can refer the matter to another federal agency, such as the DOJ, Department of Justice, or the OIG, Office of Inspector General, for further an in investigation. The look-back period for RACs is only three years. That is a huge difference. So when you are audited, please, please look at the contract of the auditor 
and make sure that they are a rack or a Mac because this is crazy confusing, but some companies get contracts for both. So they can be a rack and a Mac and a TPE and other acronyms, but you need to know when they are auditing you, if they're auditing you like a rack or a MAC or a TPE because there are different regulations. Now, there are key defense strategies for audits. You've got to retain legal counsel early in the audit process. You've got to know what kind of audit is happening. Like I said, they can come in without a name tag on their breast, but they may be acting as a rack and a MAC, and they may be violating rules. CMS websites often post information of the latest changes and news involving rack and MAC audits. So you should monitor these websites often. You should also ensure that all documentation regarding billing procedures and medical records are properly recorded in a thorough and legible manner. Sadly, legible matters when it comes to audits. The best evidence is recorded documentation. RACs especially scrutinize a provider's ability to demonstrate medical necessity. Therefore, it is imperative that all practices are pro properly documented and retained. Personnel should be trained on how to maintain and organize documents. Such information is a necessity. Thanks, guys. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about uh, 14 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Dr. John K. Hall, Matthew Albright, and Dr. John Salem, who's standing by to summarize today's Monitor Monday news. It's Monday. It's January the 23rd. It's the second day of the Chinese New Year, the year of the rabbit. And you're listening to a live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors National Conference for 2023 is in Orlando, Florida, April 17th through the 19th at the Lowe's Portofino Bay Hotel. The event will equip new and existing physician advisors, leaders in case management, clinical documentation integrity, revenue cycle professionals, and C-suite leaders with novel approaches to navigate their unique healthcare systems during unprecedented times. This conference is truly a one-of-a-kind and has become the go-to event for physician advisors at all stages of their careers. Speakers include outstanding thought leaders from the profession, as well as nationally recognized authorities involved in regulatory affairs and medical necessity screening procedures. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to register. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, good morning. And what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, the first risk is that I'm in an airport and we can hear a fight about whether it's the white or red zone that's for loading and unloading at any moment. 
but the real risk is me having to eat crow. Two weeks ago, while discussing the proposed FTC regulations banning non-competes, I confidently stated that if the proposed rules were finalized, with the exception of individuals who own 25% or more of a business and were getting the non-compete as part of the sales transaction, non-competes would be a thing of the past broadly across the entire economy. I now think I was wrong. There's definitely some uncertainty around this, and I can't stress, stress enough that the rule is only proposed. So on some level, nothing matters until it's finalized. But I want my explanation to be accurate. My error presents a real useful opportunity to do some introspection in education. Obviously, we all screw up. I think in the compliance world, we can set a great example by publicly acknowledging our errors and doing a root cause analysis. That should be standard operating procedure for mistakes in the healthcare industry, both for patients and regulatory analysis. So where did I go wrong? When analyzing the proposed regulation for the article, I focused on the text of the proposal, which bans all non-competes by, quote, any natural person, partnership, corporation, association, or other legal entity, including any person acting under color of authority or statute, are covered by the regulation. Well, that sounds pretty darn universal. But I failed to do two things. I didn't read the preamble to the proposed regulation. If I had, I would have seen this text. Some entities that would otherwise be employers may not be subject to the rule to the extent that they are exempted from coverage under the FTC Act. These entities include certain banks, savings and loan institutions, federal credit unions, common carriers, air carriers, and foreign air carriers, and, of course, persons subject to the Packers and Stockyards Act of 1921, not the Green Bay Packers, I had note, as well as an entity that is not organized to carry on business for its own profit or that of its members. That last one's the important thing. Honestly, it's, it's important because it suggests it doesn't apply to nonprofits, right? So, honestly, I'm not too embarrassed by my failure to read the preamble. Preambles are helpful, but they're not binding. I'm more embarrassed that I failed another act, action. I didn't consider the applicable statute. During these broadcasts, I routinely discuss the regulatory hierarchy. Manuals are not binding. Regulations are binding, but only if they're consistent with the statute, organizing the regulation, and with the Constitution. It appears that the FTC lacks authority over nonprofits. That would mean nonprofit health systems could still have non-competes while physician-owned clinics and for-profit health systems could not. We discussed legal challenges to the rule were nearly inevitable if it's finalized. This pretty arbitrary distinction between for-profit and non-profit health systems will provide one basis for that litigation. Well, Chuck, since I'm eating crow, I might as well count them. And as much as I hope that this year will be better than the last, I don't want to repeat my use of a long December. Instead, I will say that in between the moon and you, angels get a better view of the crumbling difference between wrong and right. So hopefully my error won't keep you all from coming around here, that's the title of the Cunning Crow song, as we keep trying to make heads or tails out of this regulatory mess. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. 
The Monitor Monday legislative update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, as we've heard on this program, there was a whirlwind of healthcare regulations that came out in December before the new year, and we're still trying to dig ourselves out of it. Buried within the wreckage, CMS proposed a rule called, in the vernacular, the Electronic Claims Attachment Rule. Despite its unheralded publication, my opinion on this proposed rule is that it has the potential to be revolutionary. The rule proposes to bring together two completely different healthcare data worlds. On the one hand, the administrative data of insurance claims, billing, and payments, and on the other, the clinical information contained in electronic health records. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. What is an electronic attachment? To answer, let's go back to 1996 with the passage of HIPAA. As we might recall, one of the major goals of HIPAA was to standardize electronic administrative transactions, such as claim submissions, eligibility requests, and remittance advice. Regulations implementing HIPAA, passed in 2000, required specific standard formats for these administrative transactions. As listeners are aware, the most utilized of these electronic standards is the electronic claim, or the 837, which is submitted from a provider to a plan for claim reimbursement. The regulations in 2000 also adopted the 270 and the 271 for eligibility requests and the 835 for remittance advice. The HIPAA law also required HHS to adopt a standard for electronic attachment transactions. As this audience is aware, payers often require additional clinical information in order to make coverage decisions on claims or in order to adjudicate prior authorization requests. There are two types of attachment transactions, solicited and unsolicited. Solicited is clinical information that a payer requests, while unsolicited is clinical information that a provider provides proactively, say for a prior authorization. If we think for a moment about how much paper, postage, and fax machines providers now use to send medical documentation to payers, then you see why I think this rule has the potential to be revolutionary. In fact, the rule suggests that a nearly a billion dollars a year could be saved through use of an electronic claim attachment instead of using paper or fax. CMS did propose an electronic attachment standard back in 2005. However, the rule was never finalized. In hindsight, probably the primary reason it didn't make it past the proposed rule state was that the industry did not have the technology to support any such transactions. Remember, for instance, that electronic health records were not really a thing in 2005. So then the question is, do providers and payers now have the technology to send clinical data electronically between providers and plans? Are we ready to dump the fax machine? The answer lies in what the proposed rule actually requires. The rule proposed four different sets of standards that a health plan would be required to offer a provider for clinical attachments. One, an X12 standard for the administrative part. Two, a LOINC code set to identify the type of clinical data being requested or sent. Three, an HL7 standard for the clinical information content. And four, an entirely different standard for the electronic signature. If that sounds complex, Chuck, that's because it is. Is U.S. healthcare ready for it? My guess is that CMS wants the industry to chew on this proposed rule for a while, maybe even a few years, before CMS tries to put out a final rule. 
And to quote David Glazer today, until there's a final rule, nothing really matters. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was Matthew Albright, Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. We begin a new series here on Monitor Money. It's called Docs and Regs, and it features healthcare attorney John K. Hall, who's also a physician. That story is next. You're listening to Monitor Money, where the time is now about 20 minutes after the hour. In your time zone, stand by. Learn how to save your facility hundreds of thousands of dollars in repayments and fines by correctly following the CMS requirements for implantable medical device credit reporting. This exclusive RAC Monitor webcast will provide you with all the need-to-know protocols, along with the steps for correct compliance while offering best practices to implement a viable strategy at your facility. Join us for this exclusive webcast, Implantable Medical Device Credit Reporting for 2023, What You Need to Know. The webcast is January 25th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register today at the Rack University Bookstore. We have a new segment here at Monitor Money. It's called Docs and Regs, featuring physician and attorney Dr. John K. Hall. And this morning, Dr. Hall reports our lead story about the OIG report claiming 25% of Medicare beneficiaries in May 2018 suffered adverse effects. Good morning, Dr. Hall. Hey, the OIG reported that 25% suffered adverse effects. That's a huge number, Dr. Hall. We frequently dismiss the OIG's reports as hyperbolic bloviation based on findings by reviewers with conflicts of interest and biased expositions. So when the OIG published a study of adverse events, it received very little attention. But let's take a look. The OIG reviewed 834 eligible discharges and any associated 30-day readmissions from just one month, October of 2018. During that time, there were 1,076,344 Medicare patients discharged. The OIG would like for us to believe that 834 claims without any stratification is in some way representative of the million-plus claims. Worse, the sample only covered 629 of the approximately 5,500 hospitals in the United States. Examples of the unevenness and lack of representativeness of the sampling can be found in a 20-page appendix. Several cases were intracranial or cerebrovascular procedures. One case was a lung transplant. These services are simply unavailable at many IPPS acute care hospitals. But this kind of selection bias allows the results to appear maximally unfavorable to all providers. Nurse screeners reviewed records using the IHI's global trigger tool and assessed present on admission indicators. Nurses discovered 393 qualifying records out of the 834. A team of six physicians then reviewed the records and found 299 records consisting of 115 adverse events and 185 temporary harm events. Although that's about 25% of the original sample, the sampling errors makes the number little more than a statistical novelty. The largest category was medication-related events at 43% of the errors. Patient care events were 23%, and the largest component in this group were skin injury and falls. The next category was surgical injuries at 22%. Interestingly, the, quote, experts determined that over half of the events in the surgical category were not preventable. And finally, infection was 11% of the events. The study is biased and probably uninterpretable, so why am I even talking about it? Well, there's four reasons. First, 
The OIG will continue to tout it as 25% of Medicare patients experience harm, much of which was preventable. Second, the report includes IPPS and non-IPPS claims. That means it includes costs to MA plans. Third, buried on page 29 of the report is the claim, and this is a quote, we estimated the cost for all events to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars for October of 2018. End quote. That's an annualized amount of over a billion dollars. And finally, payers may seek to make care that is worth less functionally the same as worthless if harm occurs. And this may invoke false claims liability for providers. CMS concurred with a recommendation to broaden the list of hacks, and the MA plans will almost certainly respond with aggressive attempts to define harm and reduce payment. So what should providers do? First, let's be scrupulous about diagnoses. Many of the medication events were related to, quote, delirium or other mental status changes. Several events related to acute kidney injury. Encephalopathy, delirium, and acute kidney injury are reliably denied by payers and contractors. If you're going to be penalized, at least make sure your documentation is accurate. Second, plan for medication errors to be aggressively reviewed in the future. Don't document an association between a medication and an event unless you're certain they're related and explain why they're unrelated. Third, pursue all your present on admission status indicators, especially for skin care and infections. Don't just pull out a template and click the normal boxes. The OIG has handed CMS and the MAs a new hammer, and providers should prepare to get whacked. Thanks, Dr. Hall. That was physician and attorney, Dr. John K. Hall, who reported our lead story this morning in our special segment called Docs and Regs. We have a couple of minutes to answer your questions, so Dr. John Selm, let's have a reaction, please, uh, from our good friend, Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Yes, Ron, can you comment on the extension of the telehealth services through 1231-2024, as outlined in H.R. 2617. Yeah. So, um, again, Congress stepped in and said, we want to make um, telehealth continue on after the pandemic, at least till the end of 2024. I think it's a good and a bad thing. I think lots of practices have adapted and are using telehealth. But at the same time, we're also seeing terrible reports about misuse of telehealth, fraud in telehealth. And we really don't have good data on its effectiveness compared to in-person care. So I think as a temporary measure, I think it's a great thing. Thanks, Ron. Well, I see one for Nicole Emanuel. Nicole, TPE is a type of Medicare audit, a uh, MAC audit? That is correct. And I don't believe that that was a question, more of a statement. And I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Another one is FDA requires providers to report even suspected harm from use of meds and medical devices. What discretion do providers have than to limit their reporting to cases where causation is clear. John? You're going to have to go exactly by the FDA regs. And in those cases, you have very little discretion beyond what's in the definitions. And part of the thing that drives guys like Nicole and David and me crazy on these things is that different agencies and different regulations will have different definitions. So the definition that the OIG used of harm and adverse events may not be the same as the FDA describes in its drug reporting requirements. So when you suspect you have an adverse, adverse reaction from a drug, simply pull out the FDA definition and report it as you're required. 
It may not be the same as the OIG used, though. I have an opinion on this patient harm thing. And that is, I think we should stop treating heart failure, stop treating cancer, stop treating pneumonia, because all of our treatments potentially cause what is considered theoretically harm, right? You give somebody a dose of furosemide and they're in decompensated heart failure and their potassium drops, they develop hypokalemia. That is considered patient harm. Chemotherapy causes neutropenia, thrombocytopenia. That is classified as patient harm. It's really important for this data to, be, to not be abused the way it's being abused. Just consider that if you walk in a hospital, you're going to be harmed because people walk in hospitals sick and part of getting them better may include minor issues of harm that are totally expected based on the treatment that they're receiving. Please keep this all in perspective. Very good. That's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. John K. Hall, who reported our lead story, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and of course, Dr. John Zellum, who joined us. And folks, remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, and Spotify. When you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. And be sure to listen to me tomorrow on Talk 10 Tuesday for a very special report on the coding confusion created by the AMA. Until then, everybody, have a good week. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.